into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. hear that coffin open coffin. it's time for a podcast <laughs> <laughs> greetings the damned we're back for another episode of news and sports and weather i am your host fake jake flores for the day alex patak hello we're also here with your other hosts anders lee anders lee here rock of meta hey what's up everybody we uh, we were all in the same coffin Yep. We're yep. spooning in there. It was really cozy, surprisingly. Anders is less bony than you'd think, and he, he, he can spoon. Should we start sharing coffins to reserve space in the future? We but, really should. Do yeah. married couples do that? No. Eco-socialists share a coffin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's here. Or no coffin. Go coffinless. That would probably be the better for the environment. I mean, who you just cares, like, really? I'm the Earth cares. I'm trying to tell. No, no, I mean, uh, if you're dead, who cares? Like, I yeah, don't care if I'm true. buried with somebody. Do what I'm on record. Yeah. Do whatever you want with my body. Bury me at the mall, honey. Yeah. Um, so we have. <laughs> we're moving on. That was a great thing to say. We have a wonderful interview lined up, folks. You're gonna love it. Uh, Teen Vogue author coming up. You're gonna love it. But in the meantime. There's some goddamn current events out there. So many. You seen these? You heard about these? Very current. Mm. Very eventful. They're happening now. Let's start with uh, the number one thing on everyone's mind, APAC, and their history of being exploited by right. rude anti-Semites. That's right. A- APAC, not to confu- be confused with all of Judaism. Not to be confused with... They're not with the same thing. Aflac. <laughs> <laughs> They're the APAC, well, they, Folks, the most oppressed minority group in the U.S. <laughs> what if APAC just went with the Aflac duck? What if they got the Aflac duck on their side? Not all Jews are ducks. Say it with me. <laughs> They're different. <laughs> hey, do you guys know who the top recipient of APAC is? Who? Who is it? Bob Menendez. Whoa. Oh, yeah. nice. Is that like Rob Menendez? It would yeah. be very funny back-to-back with that interview. Anyway, <laughs> um... Why is APAC in the news? You're probably wondering, you've been living under a rock. Well, it turns out they've been influencing our government for decades um, to support the transfer of weapons and money to Israel. Yeah, and they don't see, people are pointing out, they don't contribute directly to politicians, but they do kind of organize the donors. They'll get, they'll uh, tell donors who to go go to, uh, but they have this, yeah, on a technicality, they don't technically donate themselves, but they are still very influential. And yeah, it's hard to say that without running the risk of playing into the trope of uh, the Jewish people control everything. Um, I think it's very easy to say it. 
It's easy and it's it, fun. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to say that. The alternative is like they're a massive organization that's just hanging out. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do they do? Yeah. They take a field trip <laughs> to their uh, conference every year for no reason. <laughs> uh, Mehdi Hassan from the Intercept made a good point about if you replace these arguments and just insert Saudi Arabia, like no one would, uh, no one's ever uh, accused those people of being Islamophobic. Yeah, that well, is a yeah. great point. Yes, or the NRA, or yeah. like literally any other lobby. Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the reason this is coming up, tied directly into Islamophobia, is hot new. Ca- you know what? Hot is a bad obje- uh, adjective <laughs> choice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, new politician on the scene from Minnesota, Ilhan Omar, um, made one pithy tweet <laughs> criticizing lobbying. It's pithy as hell. And was uh, taken down by everyone who works in media all at once. On Specifically, Twitter. Chelsea Clinton. Chelsea Clinton was there, silencing Adam Friedland. Yeah, her original... And this is what people are trying their best to get away from was her initial tweet where she like retweeted Glenn Greenwald and was like, uh, it's all about the Benjamins. Um, Known Russian operative. Which is Glenn a bad Greenwald. song. I just want to say, <laughs> not a great song. That was my issue with it. Yeah, but like we said, apply that same comment to any other lobby, and you have the same uh, conclusion there. Um, but you know, the the focus of of groups like APAC and their acolytes is to avoid talking about the substantive issue as much as possible. To focus on the framing, try to limit the frame in which this Israel can be criticized, in which a- uh, APAC can be criticized. Um, you know, because. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about the fact that Palestinians are second-class citizens. We need more song quoting in the in the media. Like, if I want to quote Journey or Don't Stop Believing, no one's thinking about a, a small-town girl. I'm just doing the chorus, you know? No one has said It's anything. just a morale booster. <laughs> and I think that's really the heart of the criticism here. They wish you would have quoted Journey instead of... Yeah. Yeah. Pick a white band. What's wrong with you? Don't criticize Israel from a point of rhymes. Um, yeah, so this is um, a fabricated assault on pretty much just the only Muslim congressman, uh, congresswoman, for that reason, is pretty much my takeaway from the whole issue. Yeah, and there are people who, you know, some of whom are of the Jewish faith who uh, could stand up for her, one of whom might run for president, uh, who might, who would be able to come to her defense, but is not doing that. Uh, AOC, not really doing that. She gave credence to the claim the other day that Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labor Party, is an anti-Semite. There's zero evidence of that whatsoever. This is making me question if AOC really is even Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's, and in all fairness, it is easy for me to talk shit from the sidelines, um, because what we really need is... And that's is, why we do it. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but what we should be doing, what people should be doing, is um, trying to influence politicians that are coming out of this progressive movement, uh, getting in office um, with the the efforts of activists and volunteers, uh, to, to make Israel a Palestine an issue they have to be held accountable for, just as like the Green New Deal, just as Wall Street, healthcare, just as, those, as important as those issues. Uh, be- I think it's safe to name Ilhan Omar as our girl boss of the week. Uh-huh. Yeah. Honey. A segment we will be doing every week. Should she choose to accept the position, she can run the podcast. Does she have what it takes to be a girl boss? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> she fills in for Jake. Sure, you're a representative in government, but can you can you get? It up? Yeah. Okay. Update: She has been dethroned by Chelsea Clinton. Damn. Uh, <laughs> uh, this whole thing is rigged. <laughs> uh, she later apologized for the tweet too, which is like, hey, uh, yeah, for it. that was that was disappointing because yeah, you're seeding ground rap songs. You're seeding ground, but the but there's not enough people backing her, so she kind of has no choice. Is what uh, I can only assume. Um, and you know, it is of course this the stereotype that Jews control the media. That's not true. Uh, but what is true is that the Israel, the Israeli lobby, has watchdog groups. They have people whose job it is to is to sit around watching CNN, listening to NPR, and take every single sentence about Israel, dissect it to death, and call and complain. And then there's not as much pressure on the other side. So the we have to like match that. We have to um, st- stand up for the Palestinians in the public sphere uh, in a, in a way that will match that fucking uh, animus coming from the uh, the Israeli lobby. If you want to be the girl boss of the week, you have to listen to all the departments. That mm. means accounting. That means sales. The uh, Israeli lobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, Palestinians. All important parts of your company. But it's not just this one tweet that makes her said girl boss of the week. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, this is just, you know, run-of-the-mill Twitter Storming. This is the Twitter battle royale that happens every day. Not very exciting. It only really sticks out because literally everyone with a job in media tried to step on her face all at once. (laughs) The reason that she is dominating the news cycle now is she was on the Foreign Affairs Commission interviewing Elliot Abrams. Let's talk about it. Friend of the show, Elliot Abrams. Chapo had a really good episode about Elliot Abrams last week if you want to hear every damn thing he's ever done. But all you need to know is um, he's the villain Skeletor from He-Man. Yeah. He looks like, what's that actor? Billy D. No, not Billy D. Williams. <laughs> he looks what? like you know Billy D. Williams. Not Billy D. Williams. <laughs> he looks like, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Shug Knight. <laughs> <laughs> What if what if the root published is Elliot Abrams the original OG? Elliot is he the, is the original gangster? I mean, honestly, he is. Yeah, that is. He is a he lot more like similar to Robert Shug Duvall fifteen years ago. And you know what? In the root's defense, uh, if they had published that article, Elliot Abrams would be more like Shug Knight than Nancy Pelosi. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's what <laughs> he I'm has saying. a lot more bodies on his hands. Um, he looks nothing like Billy Dew Williams. If you're wondering what he looks like, he's a pale as a sheet. Bald man with a scowl and a nice tie. He looks like he sits in a lot of comfortable chairs where he points to send his U.S. trained militias to commit war crimes. Yeah, while uh, taking breaks from coordinating with the devil's rejects. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so- Jackie Earl Haley. That's who I'm thinking of. Look him up. Okay. Uh, so... This interview starts out where she is questioning Abrams, who... Rog, have you had a very uh, quickly summed up description of what his job was in the 80s, right? Yeah, he's the envoy for operations in uh, uh, Latin America. Yeah, and he was eventually charged with something on a federal level and pardoned by the H.W. Bush presidency. Yeah, and the ICJ went after him, International Court of Justice, and because of that, um, the U.S. is, like, not part of the ICJ because we're like, oh, this is un- this is stacked against us because they're actually like the one institution that's holding the U.S. accountable for war crimes. 
uh, <laughs> the fucking human rights violations we'll that we try to our business on elsewhere. We're um, over justice now. <laughs> I love that you can just do that. Out. You're just like, ooh, yeah. we're, we're gonna leave the party. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting hot in here. Uh, okay, well, let's play uh, the start of this clip just to see how uncomfortable it gets for the first 30 seconds. Thank you, Chairman. Um, thank you all for being here, and thank you for your uh, testimonies. Mr. Adams, in 1991, you pleaded guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress regarding your involvement in the iran Kortra affair, for which you were later barred by President George H.W. Bush. I fail to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give uh, today to be truthful. Uh, Girl uh, boss uh, of the week, sitting on your throne in your big marble office. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen on public access television. Uh, she rules. She's the new AOC. Uh, she's she's dabbing um, Pokemon Go to Ilhan Omar's house and give her something nice. <laughs> Raghav's headed out, by the way. Bye, Raghav. Bye. <laughs> you know who else is headed out? Late breaking news. Uh, Amazon not coming to New York City. Oh, really? Yeah. That happened just now? Just now. New York Times just broke. After much thought and deliberation, we've decided not to move forward with our plans to build a headquarters for Amazon in Long Island City, Queens. Folks, folks, I know that we we talk down about um, what we do on this podcast, but no one can say it doesn't have real-world results. Single-handedly stopping Amazon from coming to New York City, displacing... The fine folks of Queens. <laughs> the queens and kings of Queens. <laughs> what a good week. I mean, maybe not. Yeah. Nope. These two things were good. Owning Elliot Abrams and calling him Adams, even though that's not his name, that was good. And right. And uh, uh, kicking Amazon out by just uh, booing them a lot. <laughs> I mean, you know what's going to happen now? Like, Amazon, new headquarters, Caracas, Venezuela. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking huge. I wish that didn't come out just now so we could have more about it. Yeah. Oh, Such well. is life. <laughs> um, the response to the Omar affa- foreign affairs thing have been juicy? What word would you would you use for it? I would call it juicy. I would call it uh, steamy. If you thought Saucy, people were mad spicy. about the APAC comment, you should see after this uh, tiny woman yells at a cartoon of an evil politician. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine anybody watching this video looking at <laughs> this this man who's like if a child had to draw <laughs> like a bad guy and then her describe his war crimes and him go, that's preposterous, and going, she's being mean to this old man. <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's see if we can pull up some good shit about that. Yeah, I mean, this one, like, clearly has nothing to do with, with Israel, although people are already saying uh, they're trying to stretch this smear as far as they can. There, uh, somebody on Twitter was just saying that uh, neocon is an anti-Semitic slur, which is, of course, uh, insane. Um, True, they've been through This so is much. a neoconservative synagogue. Has anyone ever said that? I don't think so. Uh, by the way, 
was just criticizing him. There's a lot of light breaking news happening. Um, Bernie Sanders on a conference call with Jim Zogby, who is actually a pretty good Middle Eastern expert dude who might be in a future Sanders cabinet should, should that come to fruition. Uh, he said that Sanders said that he talked to Ilhan last night and gives her his personal support. Quote, we will stand by our Muslim brothers and sisters. So at this point, I speak to Representative Omar and say, yes, you can use that word. (laughs) 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 Go ahead. I think it's cool. (laughs) Right. Obviously, like, that's good, but it would have been better if uh, he had been there in the moment um, sticking up for her. Yeah, not even he's not part of the commission, but he's just there being like, that's my friend. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Leave all alone. Because again, she said nothing wrong, and people she said nothing are... wrong, and was so fair and balanced about her tone and how she brought everything up. I mean, if you are responsible for these things, you can't be a baby about it when someone reads a list of your war crimes later. I'm sorry, it's stupid. <laughs> it's just stupid. People are trying to have it both ways. You have Michelle Goldberg writing in the New York Times about how Ilhan Omar's tweets were insensitive. She does not cite the tweets. In the article, does not go into her specific wording, and and that's really what you have to ask when people are smearing her as uh, being anti-Semitic or giving credence to anti-Semitism. Specifically, what did she say that offended you? Because if you can't answer that question, then this isn't a legitimate conversation. People have pointed to a, a quote she uh, tweeted in in 2012 when she said something about Israel hypnotizing people, arguably. Arguably, I'll give that like a little bit, maybe. That gets uh, one Jewish Pinocchio. (laughs) (laughs) Careful. Uh, (laughs) Pinocchio is not Jewish, just to be clear. He just wants to be a boy. Yeah. He just wants to be a boy. Right. That Pinocchio is is embodies some, you know, stereotypes about Jews without being a Jew, which shows that you can be a lobby that does corrupt things, that corrupts puppet. politicians. He's a, you can be a puppet. You can be a lobby. You can do all these terrible things and not be Jewish. We're not criticizing APAC because they're Jew- a lot of Christians support APAC. A lot of Christians support Israel. Uh, this is not about Judaism. Uh, but It's mostly about beating up the one Muslim congressperson. Yeah. And the one and the. Th- and a Muslim former country that is being um, terrorized currently, and that we're not talking about the conditions in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Um, but she is a congressperson, by the way, right? I'm not going to have to somehow redact every time I've said congressperson. <laughs> yeah, she's a member of Congress. Great. Maybe she'll be a senator soon. That'd be cool. Uh, hey, yeah. maybe she'll get a lightsaber. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? And take it to Elliot Abrams' throat? That'd be pretty... I would watch that, for sure. Violence is not the answer <laughs> to this guy who organizes death squads for a living. Yeah. <laughs> what a fucked up entire world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you had some other juicy, juicy uh, media burgers for us to munch on that's yeah. right yeah you you had something for for the dammers to chew on this week didn't you anders yeah well speaking you of burgers dog. somebody who loves his burgers is steven schmidt we all know it also known as steve schmidt we've all seen him around the cafeteria he is a former campaign advisor to uh john mccain um he is a uh, moderate self-described he looks like the pillsbury doughboy he uh, is on a was on a podcast, which is known as Words Matter, 
um, and they are committed to objective reality. You listen to this thing. They got Elise Jordan on it. She's like, uh, we every he day. Believes we, in words. They believe in words. They believe in defining words. Words have one meaning. Feelings. You look it up in the dictionary, and that's what a word means, literally. Um, so Steve Schmidt is advising Howard Schultz. Uh, maybe it's because they both have SEH names. I think there's that's probably it. Yeah. Mm. Are they all centrist? The sh- if you have a sh- in the beginning of your name, you're a centrist. See, we don't like. have time for uh, racist conspiracies because we are fully engaged in the SCH conspiracy. Right. That's getting all of our energy over here. Yeah. Um, so basically, uh, he's. I. I see. Some people are saying that this is a cynical move on his part. That he's just. It's all about the Benjamins for him. See how I used it right, on a gentile. That's racist. You said that. Uh, he, you know, Howard Schmidt, of course, or Howard Schultz has a lot of cash to throw around and he's hiring these consultants who do not do anything. Steve Schmidt's job um, can be replaced by the free market and can be replaced by an app. These campaign strategists are completely useless. As AOC, I'd like to see an app rub Howard Schultz's shoulders and tell him he's a smart little boy. <laughs> I'd like to see a computer do that. That, that is essentially their function. I'm, and we've and DSA has run in the campaigns we've been successful in so far. We don't hire strategists, and it works better. You, we don't waste millions of dollars on somebody who's like going to tell you to uh, how to appeal to the um, Methodist soccer mom in uh, Nebraska. Like th- th- these... we also don't have millions of dollars, which has a lot to do with it, <laughs> right? <laughs> but we do have millions of well, not millions yet, but we have thousands of people who are going to knock on doors and make uh, passionate we have percentages arguments. Percentages of millions of people. <laughs> <laughs> that much is true. Um, so he he goes on this podcast, and I think he he genuinely believes in in Howard Schultz because these people think that if the nominee on the Democratic side. Um, is even Kamala Harris, as long as it's somebody who supports Medicare for All and a Green New Deal, they're politically toxic. They're not going to be able to win against Donald Trump. Does Howard Schultz have a platform other than please don't touch my money? Uh, Isn't that his whole thing right now? I think it's in the works. I think, um, I mean, I think it might have to do with uh, free frappuccinos. Because the other things are all coffee related, which is not a presidential... Uh, job. <laughs> right. I think, well, yeah, prescription drugs will be able to be ground up and put in your milkshake coffee. And, and then he drinks your milkshake. <laughs> he drinks it up. <laughs> I think that's what he's going to do. It's all going to be Starbucks related. All, none of these people want to be president. I don't know why they're running. I guess they just more don't want a progressive to be president, but... Well, I see, I think they actually he actually thinks he can win because in his view... If you have a progressive or anything approaching progressive, they can't win because that's the way they've been trained to think over the past. And that's the way most Americans have been trained to think. They have low money energy. Yeah. Um, So by their logic, you get uh, this crazy Trump guy on one side and you get this crazy left winger who wants, I don't know, the same thing they have in every other industrialized country in the world. On the other side, uh, that's going to provide an opening for a th- a third way a, a sensitive middle ground yeah so you get a howard schultz where cappuccinos are ground <laughs> um so 
he, he, I think he genuinely believes this, but uh, they're pressing him on his own podcast. They say, we're going to treat this guest the same as everybody else. And they ask him fair questions about uh, the history of, of third party candidates, um, how they really, you know, are not able to win. You look at Ross Perot. Um, you look at, you know, Mike Bloomberg, who thought about it, decided not to. And uh, they're like, how are you going to get your name on all these ballots? The system is rigged against third parties. Um, and they mentioned in 2004, and this is important to point out, uh, the Democrats were scared shitless of Nader because of 2000. And so they um, really, uh, I, they changed the laws. They, they went after, they devoted a lot of resources to, to getting his name off the ballot in uh, states like Ohio, um, which, you know, say what you will about Nader, that's not, you need, instead, of, you should make an argument to the people who are thinking about voting for him. Instead of trying to um, take away people's rights, which is, includes voting in this country, um, make a better argument. They don't care about democracy, though. They just care about, like, having you sign on to their party. Yeah, exactly. Um, we so, agreed on this. We should start a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, like all these institutional hurdles exist for third parties and independents in the United States. Who's pressing him? Who's pressing Steve Schmidt on this on his own podcast? You get, uh, both of the other people, Elise Jordan, and I forgot the other guy's name, but he's sort of like a little more left leaning. Um, and he starts asking towards the end about AOC and about AOC's 70% marginal tax rate. That's right. And Schmidt doesn't know how to answer it. He says. Well, uh, well, well, I think that's an anti-growth uh, agenda. And then and they respond things like, what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? We I, had It only affects like eight people. Right. <laughs> and some of the biggest economic growth we had in the United States was in the 50s and 60s when 90% tax rates were in effect on these Why people. Why are you sweating so much? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he says, this is bullshit and walks out of his own podcast. Uh, because they, but because what these people don't want to face and so what they haven't realized is that they act, their ideas actually are not popular. There is not this uh, silent majority of people who want um, the richest who people want. to pay like 3% in taxes. <laughs> you to keep more of their $10 million annual income. There are a lot of people who trick themselves into believing they'll make more than $10 million. And then you can convince, I guess, like a small percentage of those people. But when you keep saying the quiet part out loud, which is the recurring theme of all politics in 2019, there's no way to sell most people on rich uh, assholes buying a third boat. You can't do it. They know that you have their money. Um, especially when you have proposals like the Green New Deal and you have proposals like Medicare for All and people say we can't pay for them and then we're just listening to a, a full press conference on how Howard Schultz thinks like a room should be a Vitamix. <laughs> it, it doesn't, it's not going to, uh, you can, the center cannot stand. It's, it's, you, can't, you can't keep it, folks. It won't hold. Folks. The center. It won't hold. I'm running for office because I don't know how to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to mention very quickly, of course, we said uh, Elliot Abrams is on a crusade to destroy democracy in Venezuela. Um, but there, you know, the situation down there is complicated. I want to be clear. The U.S. backed coup should not be happening. It's illegitimate. It, we should oppose it in every way possible. But there has been a tendency to sort of suppress any nuance about what the Venezuelan government is doing. And guess what? It ain't all good. 
Um, Maduro should not be immune from criticism. And uh, if you're an American who's interested in in finding out more about uh, movements in Venezuela on the ground, um, check out El Maizal, which in English means the Maizal. It is a commune <laughs> in Venezuela. Uh, led by this guy, Angel Prado, and um, he's heeding the call that Chavez made before he died about 10, and this is uh, something he, he encouraged Venezuelans to do about 10 years ago, which was to collectivize land, to, to form communes. Um, and so they're doing this, and they're really not getting support from the Maduro administration. Uh, and, you know, if the situation is resolved, and hopefully uh, the the um, Socialist Party remains in power, uh, there can be more of these communes that are able to sustain themselves and work in cooperation with the state or at least not be uh, antagonized by uh, the Venezuelan state. So This may um, be a bigger conversation than we want to have right now, though, but don't you worry that, you know, researching up on the nuance of the corruption of the Venezuelan government right now when the push where we live is to jack that place up and put oligarchs in charge is not constructive well i i mean not that you should just support these people yeah and give them a blank check but it's just like if you you consider the current situation of a bloodthirsty government looking to start a new war to distract uh americans and get them behind the president that's what they want to do and there's a very real chance they'll do it and i don't think that will be helpful to venezuelans on any side of the political system right but i i think the the point is that we got to prevent this from happening again. And the way to do that is to make sure that the Venezuelan economy, that, that these people in Venezuela have our support and have our solidarity. People are trying to uh, have a, a communal way of life in that country. And, you know, I think we got to be able to do both at the same time. We got to be able to, to do our best to prevent our, our country from, yeah, we got to stop the U S from, from intervening, but we also have to support these movements that, uh, want to renew the promise of Chavismo. I am building a machine that can go back in time. Um, so that's L And again, in English, <laughs> that stands for the Mizal. <laughs> check, check it out. Um, seems like a good place to read. Anything else we want to cover? That's it. Yeah. Uh, stay tuned for our interview. Stay tuned. It's going to be informative. Now, Frankenstein. All right. We are joined today on the internet by Andalusia Noel Soloff, who is a journalist from Mexico City. Uh, she writes for Teen Vogue. Thank you for so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show today. Yeah. Hello from the internet. <laughs> uh, you write for a, a variety of, of publications, but a, a lot of your work recently has been on Teen Vogue, which um, is not just about Jonathan Taylor Thomas anymore. You've got a lot of hard-hitting uh, international news of great import. I was wondering if you could begin by like telling us, how did that happen? How did Teen Vogue get to be so cool? Sure. Yes. Teen Vogue is one of the greatest outlets, especially for young people interested in politics uh, today in the United States. And uh, I specifically write also for the what's called the OG history, uh, which is history as not told through a white cis hetero uh, lens. And so therefore, I've 
did first last year. I um, actually, I'm originally from New York City, but I've been living in Mexico for the past eight years and uh, living and working here. And in Mexico, we have a crisis of uh, enforced disappearances. There are over 40,000 people that are disappeared, meaning that their families don't know if they're alive or if they're dead. They don't know what happened to them. Um, some they actually saw them get kidnapped. Some they just their loved ones never came home and they have no idea what happened. Um, actually, right now, there's a woman, uh, Otilia Eugenio, who's a indigenous uh, rights activist. She's a MEPA from the southern state of Guerrero. And I actually recently spoke at a conference with her and she was traveling two days ago in a taxi on a highway uh uh, from her home to the capital of Guerrero, and no one knows what happened to her. And two days have gone by, and no one can find her. So that's actually what happens in many of these cases of the forty thousand people. I have been uh, working for the past four and a half years on the case of the forty-three students that were disappeared from the Ayutzinapa Teachers College, um, and I'm currently uh, finishing up a graphic novel on that case of these forty-three students who were kidnapped by Mexican police, and no one knows what has happened to them, and their parents have been demanding answers for the past four and a half years. Um, and that was a case that kind of shook the whole, not just the whole nation, but the whole world that people didn't understand how 43 students could just go missing. So last year, uh, there was a similar case. Uh, the number was last, there were three film students uh, in this northern city of Guadalajara, and they had gone to film a horror movie. And on their way back, which was a few hours from Guadalajara, they were very close to the city, and they were intercepted by uh, vehicles of armed men. And then no one knows what happened to them. And to the day, no one knows what happened to them. And then the government actually uh, came out and just said that a rapper had kidnapped them and dissolved them all in acid. And so there's no remains, so they don't know what happened to them. Um, for those of you who watch Breaking Bad, like the basically the scenario that they described is that of Breaking Bad, uh, which is believed to have been inspired by uh, previous murders in Mexico in Tijuana. Um, but anyways, returning to these students. So the I was tweeting a lot just about how it was infuriating, A, that um, if it was real that these students had uh, really been uh, kidnapped and dissolved in acid, like that you go uh, to do your school homework and you don't make it home because you're kidnapped and then all of a sudden there's no trace of your body. It's, it's quite frightening. Um, and then also really that the government wasn't looking for them. No one was talking about them. And also the only evidence that they had about uh, this acid, because acid dissolves all of your bones, except uh, forensic experts have explained to me that what uh, usually the only way you can identify someone who has been dissolved in acid is through their teeth, that sometimes the teeth don't dissolve. Um, mm. And so I was just uh, tweeting about all of this, and it started getting picked up by many different uh Mexican uh, filmmakers and actors like Guillermo del Toro, Gallagher, Bernal, etc. So the tweet just went uh, kind of viral. And then all of a sudden someone wrote me from Teen Vogue and was like, hey, do you want to write about this for us? And I was like, you want me to write about enforced disappearances for Teen Vogue? <laughs> and they were yeah. like, yes. And I was like, well, how do I write it? I mean, basically, and then I think this is, this is ironic. You know, I'm not a millennial. I'm a little past that age. And, uh, even though the Pew Research Center says that I am, but I'm on the on the edge. But anyways, the point is that um, I was like trying to make it relevant for young people. So I put in the whole Breaking Bad reference and then they were like, young people don't even know what Breaking Bad is. What are you talking about? But anyways, uh, um, so that's that's how I started writing for uh, Teen Vogue. And since then, um, I've written about migration about trans migrants that uh, uh, Roxana Hernandez, who was uh, who died 
in custody, U.S. custody, because of uh, medical neglect and also possible beatings. And um, also Claudia Gonzalez Gonzalez, who was killed on the border, uh, who was shot by Border Patrol, and she was a young indigenous woman uh, just looking for um, economic opportunities in the U.S. And uh, also um, have written about, um, last year was... um, the 50-year anniversary of the Tlatelolco massacre, which occurred in Mexico just one week before the Olympics, when there was an enormous uh, leftist student movement. As 1968, there were movements all uh, across the world. And what happened here in Mexico since the Olympics were coming and they wanted essentially to shut down the student movement, the government's reaction was just to open fire on a massive protest, which killed hundreds of students. And to this day, it's actually not known how many were killed. Um, mm-hmm. That march is commemorated every single year at the Tateloco, uh, the Plaza de las Tres Culturas, a three culture plaza, um, but from which represents kind of the uh, uh, ancient um, Aztec history of Mexico and then also the uh, like has a church and then also modern history. There's like a modern cultural center there and modern buildings. But anyways, um, that's why it's three cultures. But point is that the massacre um, that today, 50 years later, no one was prosecuted for. And that's why many people believe that such grave uh, human rights violations and massacres continue to happen in Mexico. And then the most recent story, which I did, which is, I think, how you guys got to me, was the story on uh, the Zapatistas, the indigenous Mayan rebels of uh, Chiapas, Mexico, who rose up 25 years ago, um, took Mexico by storm, and today have uh, hundreds of thousands of members living in autonomous communities. Uh, so, so just briefly... What do you suspect is behind these disappearances? Is it the Mexican government? Um, it's a range of factors. Um, in many cases, it is uh, that the police are involved or military. Actually, a report did come out a few years ago. I think Human Rights Watch uh, put it out, actually, that was about uh, the percentage. Um, I don't have that in front of me, but I think it was at least over 30% of the disappearances that uh, state security forces were involved. Um, It's really hard to, there's a wide range um, that in the case, there's an increase actually of femicide, of the assassinations of women. And also there's an increase in disappearances of women just here in uh, Mexico over the past month. It has been revealed that many women have been, there have been attempted kidnappings of young women outside of the subway here in Mexico City. Um, And so in that case, if uh, women, the only ones who are being able to tell their stories are the ones who escaped these kidnappings because we, uh, no one has been able to um, talk with those who actually have been kidnapped. But uh, in that case, that women, so if a woman was kidnapped outside a metro, no one knows what happened uh, to her, she's disappeared. Those are generally thought more to be associated with human trafficking, um, that the women are then uh, sold off into sex sex trade rings. But but then in the case of many, like of the uh, students, it's really unclear. Often there is the element of... uh, drug trafficking and drug control and territory control, because with the case of the Ayutinapa students, um, the government has always tried to maintain that they were disappeared because uh, they, uh, 
local drug cartel that uh, control the area Iguala, where they were uh, traveling through, which is an area where there is a lot of uh, poppy production for uh, heroin usage in the United States, um, that they thought that the, the bus that they were, um, no, sorry, they thought that they were uh, there to uh, kind of like uh, fight with the local cartel. That's what the government says. And that the local cartel mystic the students for another cartel. And that's why the local cartel in cahoots with local police uh, attack them. Um, but there are many other theories. One is that this is an area where there was a lot of heroin trafficking and that commercial buses were used for heroin trafficking and that the Ayutzinapa students uh, who have kind of this many different uh, direct action traditions where they don't have enough buses um, at their school actually to engage in the activities that they neither their activities to go and do like their kind of internships and practices where they go and uh, teach elementary school teachers or their kind of more activist uh, activities, which are um, at that time, this was September 26, 2014, they were going to the city of Iguala to commandeer commercial buses, which they would then use to transport thousands of students to go to the commemoration protest of the Tlatelolco massacre, which I had uh, mentioned previously. So um, they basically had this whole thing worked out where they go and they speak to the uh, owners of the bus buses and they have kind of an agreement with the bus company that's like, we're going to use this bus for a week. We won't do it any harm. We'll treat it well and then we'll give it back. And it's more or less worked that way. So they did that that night in Iguala. And it is believed that possibly one of the buses that they took uh, had heroin on it and that they did not know about it, that it was like a secret heroin uh, shipment in the bus and that there uh, is... Uh, the DEA and many other U.S. State Department uh, officials have linked buses from Iguala, Mexico, to um, to Chicago transporting heroin. So it's believed that th that that is why they were attacked, and it's also believed that the military could have been involved because for uh, drug trafficking in Mexico, it couldn't happen without uh, higher authorities being involved, as we just saw in El Chapo case of uh, Joaquin Guzman, who was just sentenced to life in prison in the United States, um, and that many of the testimonies uh, spoke about how Mexican officials were involved, I mean, to the point of receiving, you know, that they won a witness said that uh, the former president received a hundred million dollars uh, in bribes. You know, so this is uh, just showing all of this. The disappearance. Um, what is uh, what is the case is that if the government is not involved explicitly in some of these disappearances, they are involved for by omission because they don't uh, do anything to actually. Uh, prevent these uh, these disappearances. They don't look for people when often when women uh, mothers go and say that their daughters disappeared. Uh, police will just be like, oh, she just ran off with her boyfriend. Why are you even looking for her? She'll come home in two days. Right. They're trying to cover up by watching HBO shows and giving that as the giving plot lines as the explanation. Right. These if you had to guess, what percentage of the actual disappearances are caused by rappers? <laughs> Um, probably like point zero 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 five percent. That's an insignificant statistic. Slim shady to none. Um, but Albert, so if you check out my Teen Vogue article, um, on these disappearances, um, you, I think, 
you can then see how they put it all on a wrapper. But I think it just was very convenient for them to say, oh, look, it's a wrapper. Rappers are scary. They kidnap people, you know? Whereas, like, there was, I mean, sure, it's possible that that rapper did that, but it's also entirely possible that there was, he had no involvement and he was just a scapegoat. Right. Why would they have to rhyme so much if they weren't hiding something? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, well, another article of yours that you touched on is that the Zapatistas have been revolutionary force in Mexico for decades, uh, which is about the 25th anniversary about the Zapatista uprising. Uh, if you could explain for some of our listeners who might not be familiar, what is a Zapatista? So the Zapatistas, um, that actually goes back to the Mexican Revolution with Emiliano Zapata, um, who was a campesino, a humble farmer um, leader who uh, led the Mexican Revolution, uh, saying that the land belongs to those who work on it, not to the elite who try to control the land. Um, and then the, but that was... Uh, really a dream that never was realized, even though the Mexican Revolution did lead to uh, the process of ejidos, which means that there was a communal land that uh, Mexican farmers could work on. But then in 1994, much of those protections of this communal land were taken away. And 1994, January 1st, is also the time that the Zapatistas launched their revolution and their uprising, because that is when the North American Free Trade Agreement uh, went into effect. Um, and the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, which was supposed to, quote, uh, eliminate barriers to free trade between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, uh, many farmers said that they believed that it would be their death uh, because it would flood uh, the Mexican market with crops, especially corn uh, that's been subsidized in the U.S. and be much cheaper than the corn that they themselves grow and live off of. And that is the case. That is why in the late 90s and early uh, 2000s, uh, hundreds of thousands of Mexicans migrated to the United States because they could no longer live off of farming after the implementation of NAFTA. Um, but anyways, the so the Zapatistas were uh, organized since the 80s. You know, it, it doesn't, uh, guerrilla uprising doesn't just happen in one day to the next. Um, and then it was on January 1st, 1994, that a few thousand Zapatista guerrillas, um, mostly from like age 18 to 30, and uh, men and women. Um, as you can see, there's a great documentary called Zapatista where you can see the over where they overtake uh, the municipal palace of San Cristobal, which is like a colonial city um, in Chiapas, Mexico, which is now like a very tourist city. But anyways, they overtook it um, and they declared war on the Mexican government. They said that NAFTA was the death of them and that they um, want uh, Mexico where they could also, you know, that they could live in, that they would be free, that not just in Mexico, you know, for those from above. Um so that happened. And then uh, th essentially they were at war with the Mexican government uh, and they said that their goal was to uh, get to Mexico City. Um, but there were I mean, the Mexican government did uh, rapidly respond. Um, and also just one of the things that they did say right when they uh, declared uh, war on the Mexican government, they said, we are a product of 500 years of struggle, first against slavery, then during the War of Independence against Spain, led by insurgents, then to avoid being absorbed by North American imperialism. Um, and so they, uh, there were a few hundred, there's no exact numbers, but it is uh, believed that a few hundred uh, 
Zapatistas were killed um, by the army in the next uh, two weeks of battle. Um, And then there was a negotiating table that was implemented on January 12th. Um, And for those that know a little about the Zapatistas, they probably know about Subcomandante Marcos, um, Mm -hmm. who is kind of, it was like the poetic spokesperson of the Zapatistas. Um, And uh, then they came to the table and said that they will not, they will not turn over their weapons, you know, because this was an armed rebellion. And they said the only way that they would turn over their weapons would be dead. Um, they did say that they would not use them and they would agree to a ceasefire, but that they would never turn over their weapons, which to the date they have not turned over their weapons. Um, and so then they started peace negotiations. But then over uh, then in the late 90s in Chiapas, really, there was a um, low intensity war where the government, um, the Zapatistas were demanding for there to be demilitarization because the government had installed military checkpoints everywhere um, and military barracks and then also uh, started uh, supplying weapons to uh, groups that operated outside of law, which are paramilitary groups. Um, And then in 1997, there was a horrendous massacre with an organization that was not Zapatista because they were a pacifist organization um, and they were not in agreement with uh, the armed uh, uprising of the Zapatistas, but they were in agreement of what they were fighting for. So they were allies of the Zapatistas, the community, uh, the community of Acteal, of the Las Abejas or the Bees. Um, And in this massacre, the paramilitaries came and they opened fire uh, when people were praying in a church and they killed uh, 21 women, nine men and 15 children. So 45 indigenous members of this community. Um, So that made uh, also thousands of people were being displaced. I mean, it was really just uh, like, as I mentioned, a low intensity war. And then finally, the uh, Zapatistas continued to meet with the government and uh, sign what was called the San Andres uh, uh, Agreements, which was supposed to um, kind of guarantee that the Zapatistas would have the autonomy that they wanted as an indigenous community and also not just them, but indigenous communities in general. But the government basically never implemented what they agreed to in the San Andres Agreements. And then later, passed their own indigenous uh, reform law, which many believe is what actually opened the entire country to mining. And now there's hundreds of mining concessions all over Mexico, um, which are largely in rural and often indigenous communities. Um, And then also other kinds of like uh, mega projects, uh, enormous highways uh, and um, recently, now they're trying to build what's called the Tren Maya. That's a new president, Lopez Obrador, has said that he will build um, a train that will be for tourists that will go across Chiapas that will be using old uh, train tracks that were already there. But the Chiap- uh, the Zapatistas have said that they will not accept this train, that they have no interest in the train and that they're offended that it's called the Tren Maya. Um, and that uh, also he's mentioned like a, a fruit and timber corridor, but really uh, the main issue is that this is actually a a part of it's an international convention that indigenous communities have to be consulted before any kind of project like this will happen on their land and that it has to actually be a real uh consultation not where they just tell them hey we're gonna build a highway are you guys okay and then people say what and then they say oh yeah they said yes which has happened all over the world it's just recently that uh indigenous communities have been successful in fighting back uh, against uh these projects where they have not been consulted i uh, two years back, went to a community, San Miguel de Progreso, in 
the mountains of Guerrero and this community is an indigenous community and they had uh they had no idea what was happening all of a sudden they started seeing helicopters in their community like near the community they're like what is going on here and it turned out that they were building a gold mine um but they had never actually consulted them so they actually were able to bring it to the court and get the gold mine canceled um, because they had not consulted them. That doesn't mean that they got the concession canceled and that another company could not come in then try to consult them and uh, build the gold mine. And often, sadly, what happens in these consultations, since they are communities that are very poor, they often buy out people so that they will vote in favor of the project or convince them that that it will bring, quote unquote, progress or jobs or prosperity. Um, but anyways, uh, the Zapatistas, uh, returning to them, yes, are right now feel that they are very much on the defensive Um, at the 25th uh, anniversary. Normally, it's much more focused on cultural activities. This year, there were uh, over 3,000 on the militia members or the milicianos, where they don't come out, they don't uh, march with arms, but they are uh, the Zapatista, considered the Zapatista army to show that they are not backing down, that they will not let these projects invade their territory and kind of ruin their way of life. And then there's those that say, oh, but these will bring progress. And they say, no, we don't. This progress is not for us. It's for tourists. A, a quick question about the train installation. Is there is there broader public support for that? Is the public engaged with that dialogue? Or? Elsewhere? You mean ex- elsewhere in Mexico? Yeah, like the broader, yeah. yeah. Um, yes. Uh, well, Lopez Obrador did this series of consultations, which were like going to random street corners and like setting up some small booths and asking people to vote. But a very small percentage of the population did actually participate in them. Um, I will say that Lopez Obrador, as a president, uh, that's uh, really the first um, left leaning. He's definitely not leftist, but left leaning president that uh, we have had ever. So there is a lot of support for him in general. And I think a lot of that support does extend to uh, support of this train and kind of whatever other projects he proposes. So therefore, also the other issue is, um, okay, so when the 25th anniversary happened and the Zapatistas said that they were against this uh, train, on I was baffled or really appalled by the reaction on social networks of people just bashing the Zapatistas. And these are uh, presidential supporters um, and of the, his party, Morena. And they were just saying, like, where are the Zapatistas done? They haven't done anything. They just want to complain. They don't know what progress is. And uh, basically being like, where have they been for the past 25 years? Why have they not criticized any other president? Which is not true because they've consistently criticized the Mexican government and all the presidents. It isn't, didn't they run like sort of a, a shadow camp? campaign in 2006 they like ran like a parallel campaign to the, the national election the yes they did that was that when uh marcos was uh, called himself candidate cero um and they did run a counter campaign they did actually try to do something similar uh with this election with uh Mary Chui, who was a uh, part of the national indigenous congress which is a network of other indigenous communities that are allied with uh, the Zapatistas in that they don't uh, collaborate with the government, that they're not related to any political party, and they are fighting for the uh, autonomy of their own communities. And they did uh, try to run her as uh, kind of like an independent candidate, both basically to have more debate, I think, in the elections, not necessarily for her to win, which would not have happened. But uh, she did not 
get enough signatures. She needed to get a million signatures to be on the ballot. Um, she was just a little short of it. Um, but there was another candidate, uh, El Bronco was his nickname, um, from uh, Northern Mexico. And it was shown that he got many of his signatures through fraud and he was still allowed to be on the ballot. Um, and he actually, when asked in one of the debates of how to respond to crime, said that, that and actually like, <laughs> did the uh, hand movements to say that people's hands should be cut off. That is how uh, criminals should be treated. And what's sad in Mexico, in a country where there is such high levels of crime, the next day in, I think it was in Acapulco, Guerrero, someone was murdered and left in their street with their hands cut off and that there was a reference to what that uh, Bronco had said in the, can- the presidential debate the day before. Uh, and you mentioned Subcomandante Marcos. Uh, I've heard that, like, different things about that figure, that it's, like, not just one guy. Is that correct, that it's been sort of people swapping in and out, like, um, speaking on behalf of the people in Chiapas? It depends, because the Zapatistas do release uh, communiques, and it depends who it's signed by. So Subcomandante Marcos, for many years, uh, for almost 20 years, was the uh, main person who would sign the communiques um, and write them. Um, over recent years, there are other subcomandante uh, Moises, um, and then there are others that are signed by, uh, there are also some subcommanders that are women, that are female Zapatistas, and that uh, over the past few years, subcomandante Marcos has kind of disappeared from the main uh, stage, and now he... Many of the communiques are signed as uh, Galeano, who was a Zapatista teacher who was murdered by paramilitaries a few years back. Um, and so there are those who say that some comment that the Marcos is really who is signing those now as as, as Galeano. Um, but uh, yeah, it's the ones that would be signed by Marcos over many of the years. Those were written and signed by Marcos. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay, so it is a, a real person. Just kind of closing out, you've, uh, I, I guess, been sort of uh, critically supportive or, or um, uh, skeptically hopeful, I guess, of, of AMLO. Uh, do you think that you have hope for the future with in regards to uh, the Zapatistas, that they can sort of work in concert with the new government? Or do you think they're going to be at uh, loggerheads? Um, I mean, I think it is seeming they... The Zapatistas do have a very militant position, which is that they don't work with the government in any mm-hmm. circumstances. Um, I mean, I think uh, other examples would be, I know of a community that was fighting a highway for like 10 years, an indigenous community outside Mexico City, and they were fighting a highway that would go through their territory. The government built the entire highway around them and just the, the small part that would have gone through their community, they could not build it because they were opposing it. Um, and that community, they were uh, arresting people, people were receiving death threats, they were being attacked. Um, and it was going looking like there was no way because the government then had their statistics on how much money they were leave, losing every single day for them not allowing that part to go through. Um, and so in the end, they realized that they would either all be killed or arrested or figure out some kind of negotiation where now the highway uh, is going to like go over the community and they can still have access to their forest, et cetera. That is what that community, uh, the agreement that they reached because they knew that they were not going to be able to uh, fight the highway longer without, you know, it being violence being physically inflicted on them. Um, the Zapatistas, 
uh, I don't think will come to negotiations like that. They won't be like, okay, well, you can put the train on this part, but not this part. They are saying that they don't want the train in any part. So it is, um, they did just cancel. They had, uh, last year, they had a large women's gathering um, for International Women's Day, and they did plan one for this year and did just cancel it, saying that they have to focus on these priorities of uh, figuring out how to respond to what they consider these attacks by the government. Um, And I mean, for me, as far as Lopez Obrador, um, there are some things that I am more helpful about. I am very involved in press freedom uh, movement in Mexico. Over 140 journalists have been murdered in Mexico over the past uh, 18 years. And that means that we are at the level of Syria. The two countries in the world where the most journalists are murdered is Mexico and Syria. And we supposedly are not at wartime. Um, So uh, while uh, Lopez Obrador has taken power, he's only been in a little over two months. There have been four journalists that have been killed. So I don't think there's... uh, Anything that we could think, okay, now that he's president, journalists will stop being killed because it's a much deeper rooted problem. But I will say that um, there was a journal, a very well-known journalist uh, from the state of Sinaloa who did cover a lot of corruption and uh, narco trafficking. And this is from where uh, El Chapo is. And actually uh, someone declared in the El Chapo testimony that his uh, son, one of Chapo's sons, was who had ordered this journalist to be killed, um, Javier Valdez. And uh, so when that did come out in the trial, um, his widow, Griselda, did go before every single morning AMLO has a meeting in which the press can attend, in which he responds to questions, et cetera. And she did go before and, and ask, you know, saying, what is he going to do to investigate her husband's murder, which had not been properly investigated in 95% or higher of these cases of journalism murders and actually murders in general in Mexico, they're never investigated. So there's complete impunity, which allows these murders to keep happening, which is also the case of disappearances. Um, but I will say that it was um, reassuring, at least, to see that she was able to go and speak to the president and uh, be, you know, in the national spotlight saying that she's looking for justice for her husband's murder and also all the other journalists that have been murdered. So at least there is some kind of change in actually responding to that, whereas Peña Nieto would just blame before the journalists for getting killed or say that it's not actually a problem of the former president. Wow. It's so, always good to end on a high note. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, you know, some some room for optimism there uh, between the cracks. Uh, we'll definitely keep us updated about this, and we'd love to hear about your uh, your graphic novel when that comes out. When Where can people find you on the web? Um, people can find me on the web, both on Twitter. I'm Andalalucha. That's A-N-D-A-L-A-L-U-C-H-A. Um, and then also on Instagram. Um, and I publish a lot of, uh, I'm a photographer and videographer also. So I publish a lot of uh, visual reports on Instagram and on Twitter bilingually. So hopefully I always never know which one to tweet more in Spanish or tweet more in English, or just hope that people understand both. Um, and, uh, and also I will continue to be publishing. I publish in, in Teen Vogue and AJ plus, uh, sometimes on democracy now and NBC Latino, um, and definitely will have more work coming out in the next few months and uh the graphic novel will be out later this year it's called alive you took them uh searching for the iuc napa 43 and it will come out in english and spanish so thanks so much for having me on the show yeah wonderful thanks for coming on uh you can find me at anders lee here on twitter i have a show this weekend i love uh, people to come out to um and uh yeah yeah, uh, you, you can are- uh, follow me, Raga Meta, at, at on Twitter, ACLU official, and uh, yeah, I post about shows on there. 
I'm at Patak Jokes. Come find me on the internet. And thanks for listening to our show. Da, 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 da. Okay, that'll probably be it. Oh! <laughs>